Welcome back, scientists. So, I'd like to share with you tonight. Actually, before I do that, I want to ask you, so how was it? Uh, did, you, did you talk to someone you didn't know? Yes? You, nice. How was that? Great. Very nice. Pleasant. Instead of unpleasant. Good. Great. Nice. Yeah, I feel the energy of the room has kind of shifted. It's more with, filled with metta, kind of friendliness. Not just gentle, you know, general friendliness you have towards others. Nice. So, what I'd like to share with you tonight uh, are... Um, some thoughts on on practice, on meditation practice, um, as ap- approaching it as you would um, being a scientist of your own mind. So, being a scientist of your own mind, how would you approach your own practice as a scientist, as if you were scientist of your own mind? And. Um, there are many reasons for for these reflections tonight. One of them is, um, you know, they're the same way that in our society nowadays there's been plenty of fake news. There's also been plenty of fake science, fake neuroscience, actually, as it as it applies to um, meditation, neuroscience and the brain and, and meditation. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit tonight. Um, and um, and <clears throat> also just to say, um, I feel quite passionate about it because for those of you who may not know my background, actually, um, how many of you don't know my background as a scientist and might be helpful to know? Okay, all right, so I'll say a couple of words. Okay, so, so what I like to say is that I'm a dual lineage holder the lineage of science and the the tradition of meditation. So, you know, in meditation, we've been empowered and authorized by my Burmese teacher and also teachers at Spirit Rock to to teach the Dharma. You know, it's a very apprenticeship model, be, becoming a Dharma teacher. You know, it's very interactive and that it's passed down. It's it's not like you read the book and you become a teacher. No, it's like become apprentice and they teach you and they hold your hand and at some point maybe they say okay all right you go it's okay you can teach now you're authorized okay so that's the that's the buddhist lineage i'm also a lineage holder in science so so i was trained as a scientist um i got my phd about 20 years ago my specialty is artificial intelligence and i've done a lot of research and in the same way in apprenticeship model you know with with my research advisor like okay this is how you do research and okay now you you know you can get your you know we sign your dissertation okay now you can teach you can train the next generation of scientists you know that's kind of how it works so I've done plenty of science um, and trained many scientists PhD students and postdocs and so, so t- speaking about being a scientist of your own mind uh, is something that I'm really passionate about. So I'll be sharing actually from my own experience, not from my Dharma experience only, from my practice as a, 
in meditation and over a year of silent uh, retreats. Yeah, I think I've spent over 400 some days or something uh, in silence cumulatively over the past few years. It was fun. I just did another three weeks a couple of months ago. It was great. So, and, and also as, as a scientist. So, so, to be a scientist of your own mind when you're practicing, when you're doing this meditation, you know, uh, meditation practice, and it's not so complicated, right? We just tried it. Didn't you all just try it? Wasn't it fun? Bringing that different perspective, that such curiosity. Just, it, you know, you all have it. You all have this mode of inquiry. You all have a little scientist. Actually, who was it? There's a, there's a book called, I think, Scientist in the Crib. Um, and who was the author? Uh, Alison Gopnik, yes. Alison Gopnik at Berkeley, a psychologist in Berkeley. Scientist in the Crib. You've all been a scientist in the crib figuring the world out. So you still have that. You all still have that. So as you bring it on and you just orient that, oh yeah, look at that thought. Oh, look at that emotion. Isn't that interesting? Look at that pattern. Ah, it's a different way of relating to your experience. And it's actually the dharmic way of relating to your experience with curiosity, with interest, with openness. Now, I'll say a lot more about that factor of investigation, the Dhamma Vichaya, Dhamma Vichaya in Pali, later in the talk. So let's put that on the bookmark, uh, um, on the post-it note. We'll come back to it. So if you're being a scientist of your own mind, you have an amazing first-person laboratory. This being you is pretty awesome, is pretty amazing. It's, it's incredible being in this body, having this mind ha- that thinks, that thoughts just get produced, they just come. Or hearing, it just happens. You're hearing my words, you're understanding what I'm saying. How does that happen? You get up and you walk. Wow, that's pretty amazing, the locomotion that you have. Being human is incredible. It seems like we just, I just woke up and I'm in this body that, that can, when I get a cut, it can heal itself. I have no idea how to heal myself, do you? I don't know. It just does it. Right? It, I, when I take the tea... I know how to drink it. I don't dribble down. It goes down. It goes to the right place and it doesn't go to the wrong pipe. And it's just like, this thing that's my body, it just works. It's amazing laboratory. And this mind, the thinking, planning, this is incredible. So I want to invite you for a moment to just really turn inward your gaze and appreciate this amazing body and mind that is you. It's incredible sitting on every chair. Let yourself be awestruck by the magnificence that is you, is your body, is your mind, is your heart. We're always so caught in what's happening, what's wrong, what's, you know, the problems, but goodness, just to be 
aware, have awareness, have consciousness. This is pretty wild. We're sitting in a room, conscious beings, we're having a conversation. Well, it's a one-way conversation right now, but still, it's, it's pretty... It's so, so that is the first thing to really appreciate and have awe about, about this amazing laboratory that's your body, it's your heart, is your mind, your memory, your thinking, your emotions, just everything that is this package. This is pretty awesome. Wow. This is me. And that's every single one of you. Every single one of you. So with awe, also having deep humility about your subject, about this laboratory, about your topic. Deep humility about how little, really, our society knows about this body, about this mind, especially about this brain of ours, how little we know. You know, in physics there was Galileo, and then there was Descartes, um, there was Newtonian physics, pretty simple, you know, simple models, apple drops, you know, gravity. Then Einstein came, whoa, and then quantum physics, and then string theory, and Higgs boson. It's just kind of like science fiction. So all these models, how, you know, we thought we had it figured out with Descartes, Right? And then Newton, oh yeah, we have it figured out, Newtonian physics, and then more and more. And we still, there's still so much we don't know about this world. Still don't know so much. And same way, there is so little we know about, about this body, about this mind, and about this brain that we, we think we know so much about. You know, we keep hearing all these... Um, you know, and especially nowadays, journalists really like to say, oh yeah, this part of the brain does this, that part of the brain does that, as if, oh yeah, we figured it all out, it's all mapped. No- nothing could be further from the truth. Jeff Lichtman, who's a neuroscientist at Harvard University, um, there is a wonderful um, little short documentary uh, from him uh, made by National Geographic. So in that, he says that when he teaches a new uh, course, neuroscience course to undergrads at Harvard, he tends to ask them, so if everything we need to know about the brain is about one mile, let's say it's one mile, everything we need to know about the brain, how far do you think we have come so far? Any guesses in the audience? What's that? We've got an inch. Okay, what else? Any any optimists out there? <laughs> now that I've given you the prologue, half a percent, half half a percent of the mile. Okay. That, that Okay. So if it's a mile, okay. And I'll say a quarter mile. A quarter mile, just. <laughs> Somebody's got to hold that end. Quarter mile. Okay, we got a quarter mile. We got an inch. Anybody else want to venture? Well, can we use the metric system instead? Magic? <laughs> the metric system. <laughs> metric system. 
three millimeters. All right, all right. So his answer is, okay, the, the pessimists have it. Um, thank you for holding the, I appreciate that, holding the long end. Oh, somebody had to do that. Um, so his answer is three inches. Three inches out of a whole mile. Of a whole mile. So, yeah, it's, it's there is, wow, wow is right. There is so little we know. Out of a whole mile, three inches. Get that in your body. You know, when you go out for a walk, a whole mile, you walk for a mile, it takes a while, right? Okay, think about three inches. That's how much we know about the brain. So that, I hope, brings in a healthy dose of humility about how much we don't know. How much we don't know. Consider that the number of neural connections in our brain, also known as synapses, is 100 trillion. Just to get a sense of that, 100 trillion is at least a thousand times the number of the stars in our galaxy. That's in your brain. Every one of your brain. 100 trillion connections. Pretty cool. Yeah. That is good news. So, so there are billions of interconnections, order of magnitude. It's so, so just to get you a sense, so we know so little. We know so little. And what we know, my dear friend, well-known neuroscientist Cliff Saren, who's actually in the audience, puts it poetically, beautifully poetically, that what we know is simply a cloud of consensus floating over a sea of unknowing. I'll read that again. I love it. I just love it, Cliff. That's pretty. That's so Cliff. What we know is simply a cloud of a consensus floating over a sea of unknowing. Regarding that, Einstein says, what I see in nature is a magnificent structure that we can comprehend only very imperfectly and that must fill a thinking person with a feeling of humility. This is a genuinely religious feeling that has nothing to do with mysticism. So really having a genuine feeling of awe, humility, you're just feeling a religiousness about about this world, about us, about our brains. So, you've often heard nowadays, probably in the news and and various presenters and, and so many books nowadays, that the brain is often presented as if building blocks. You know, this this part does this, this part does that, um, that, you know, um, that there is the reptilian brain, that's the older part, there's the mammalian brain, and the newest part is the neocortex, which meaning is made. How many people have heard that theory, the triune theory? Come on, that's, yes, you've, okay, many people have heard it. 
So guess what? This triune brain theory, if you do a quick Google search, and people are still teaching this, by the way. They still talk about mammalian and you know neocortex, and we need to strengthen this. Um, if you do a quick Google search, actually you realize that this was a popular model in 1960s. And I quote, no longer espoused by neuroscientists in the post-2000 era. Basically, it was debunked 20 years ago. And people are still teaching it. People are not neuroscientists. So it's important to be um, well-educated consumers of science, of neuroscience. So another thing that's um, pretty common is that, oh, mindfulness meditation causes growth in the good parts of the brain and it shrinks the bad parts of the brain. You've, you've probably he- heard this. All. There are actually booklets out there. Well written. There's one. Um, anyway, there's one recent one that that basically, you know, the, t- taking very prim- preliminary research and stating it as fact that this is how things work. There's also this other theory that locates all emotions in the amygdala. You've heard that one probably. Yes, yes, of course, I've heard that, yes. The amygdala goes haywire and the prefrontal cortex needs, needs to calm it down. And if we could only quiet our amygdala or get rid of it you know, somehow, the prefrontal cortex then you know, would rain and would be the shining night. So I, I'd like to read a few paragraphs from this Awesome. Actually, this is an, if, for those who like to write this down, this is another awesome uh, uh, reference. So there was a great um, interview in the Mindful magazine, <clears throat> June 2018. So it just came out a few months ago. And the title of it is The, Magnific- the Magnificent, Mysterious, Wild, Connected, and Interconnected Brain. I just love the title. And it's, and it's an interview... Um, between uh, Barry Boyce, uh, who's the um, who's the editor of Mindful Magazine, with Cliff Saren and Amishi Ja, who are leading neuroscientists, who also have done a lot of work on meditation, neuroscience, and meditation. So I like to read a few paragraphs of this because they they put it so well. So this is this is what um, what Amishi Ja says. And, um, so in terms of these simplified models, you know, we sometimes think, okay, um, maybe it's good to have a simplified model because then, oh, we can understand what's happening. So here she's, she talks about how um, uh, it, it arose when her daughter was curious about how their brain works and how she dealt with it. So it's pretty cool. So she says, coincidentally, that occurred for me with my daughter. She was seven at the time. She jumped up on my lap while I was working on my computer. She ended up picking up a model brain I had sitting around. Not surprisingly, she took the whole thing apart. She lifted up one piece after another and asked, what does this do? With the occipital lobe, I said something like, it helps you see. For the temporal lobe, uh, it helps you hear. For the cerebellum, it helps you coordinate what's coming from all your senses and so on. I was just giving her simple answers because I was trying to work. Parents would know that. At some point, though, I said, no, let's not do it this way. Let's talk about how this actually happens. 
Then I talked to her about how all these parts never work alone. They always work together. But they work in specific ways together. As an analogy, I asked her to think about what body parts she would use to do a cartwheel. She said, I need my hand, and that's connected to my arm, and that's connected to the rest of my body. As I coaxed her through this investigation, she realized she needed all those parts and more, and she needed them to move together in a pattern that results in the cartwheel. That's a pretty good way to think about how the brain works. All of these different parts talk to each other, and they need to act together for us to accomplish something we're trying to do. She seemed to get that you just can't just think of the parts in isolation. You always have to think of how they work together with other parts and with the whole. So I think you can be simple and accessible and also correct without introducing a lot of distortion. So it's not like there is one part of the brain that just does one thing and the other part does one thing and one part is good and one part is bad. It's massively interconnected. The entire brain is massively interconnected. Everything for, for the simplest task, the entire brain, the, all parts of the brain have to work together for us to accomplish the simplest task. There's another piece I like to read from Amishi. This refers to this. So you get into trouble when you imply that what some people call the upstairs brain, referring to executive function, does all the beneficial regulating and balancing, treating the frontal lobes almost like a character in a story. The good guy, the white knight, can lead the whole view that everything that flows from strong executive control is beneficial. The reality is that someone with high working memory capacity and very good executive control could do some very bad things. Just because a particular network can do good things, it doesn't mean that what it does is always for the good. That makes sense, right? It's not a good part of the brain, bad part of you. Um, you know, a hand can do a, an act of generosity, can also slap someone. So the entire brain really works together. So I really want to, to make sure we, we leave tonight not thinking, oh yes, I you know, strengthen this part of my brain and, and weaken the other part, good part, bad part, because that, that's, we've consumed so much of that. And it's not accurate. Um, so... I'd like to say a little more about the body and then bring it together. So, so the, the one interesting thing about your mind is that your mind is not your brain. It's not your mind is not your brain. Your mind is so much more. So when when you know when the invitation is to be a scientist of your own mind. It's so much more. So let's hold that for a moment. So one example is that um, in Buddhism, actually, the word for, for the mind, the word is citta, C-I-T-T-A, and it's translated as heart-mind. Heart-mind. It's not just like we don't go here, head, heart-mind. And in fact, there is this really cool photo um, 
that clip showed me is a photo from 1992 when the scientists went to Dharamsala to visit with the Dalai Lama and, and study the monks there. And there's this photo where I think there's Francisco Varela in the front with an EG cap and, and there are a bunch of monks sitting in front and they're laughing. They're laughing. And the reason why they're laughing is that um, the translator has had said that, oh yes, we're, they're trying to study the mind. And they're laughing, well, the mind isn't there. The mind is here. Why, do they put the, why are they looking there? They're looking at the wrong place. The mind is here. So think about that. It's a different model. Where is your mind? But let's let's actually make it even more interested, interesting. So you've heard of the microbiome, probably. Microbiome, yeah. So microbiome, the human microbiota includes bacteria, fungi, uh, archaea, and, and viruses. And the microbiome refers to their genome. So microbiome in your in your gut. So all of these, you know. Bacteria, fungi, all these things are living in your body. Okay, We all have it. It's a good thing. And in fact, we, um, we are colonized by these organisms. And there was an estimate years ago that there are 10 times more non-human cells in our body than human cells. That has been revised, lowered to 3 to 1 instead of 10 to 1. And some people think even one-to-one. So each of you sitting, you have at least the same number of non-human cells in your body. But what's even more interesting is that these cells support you with your, um, your immune system. If they, if they weren't there, you wouldn't have a working immune system. You wouldn't have um, a working endocrine system. And also your metabolism. You couldn't really uh, use energy from food. And also, for many people, um, basically that translates various things. But one thing is that they can affect your mood. The microbiome can affect your emotions. They can affect your mood. So then, where is your mind? Is your mind up here? Is it here? Is it here? Where is your mind? gets more interesting. So an example from the, uh, the animal kingdom. So there's a parasite called Toxoplasma gondii that infects one-third of the people around the world. That's fine. But when it infects mice, it removes the mice's innate fear of cats. And why would it do that? Because, okay, so what happens is it, um, the, the cat, uh, the, 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 the mice lose their fear of cat and in fact they, they I think they, um, they become more attracted. That's right, they, they, it, it changes their response to the cat odor. So, they, so the cat, the mice, now go and get eaten by the cat, the mice that have been infected, And this pathogen, uh, this parasite, then goes into the gut of the cat where it loves to be. So it it actually, um, this this toxoplasma is much happier 
in the cat gut than mice gut. So th- does that make sense? So it gets so it changes the behavior of the mice so that it gets eaten by the cat so it goes where it needs to go. Clear? Yeah. That's so so we don't know yet, uh, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of uh, parasites that can affect. I mean, there are actually plenty of parasites and various viruses that affect the human body and mind and emotions and behavior. But one of them that I can share with you, and we might have had experience with that, is yeast, candida, which lives in your gut, lives on your skins. But if there are too many of them, you can get sugar cravings. You really, really want sugar and carbohydrates. Is it you or is it the yeast? Where is your mind? Who's making the decisions? Pretty cool. Okay, I don't want you to be creeped out. (laughs) But just to have an appreciation. Excuse me. Appreciation for your mind being embodied. Your mind is embodied. It's not just up here. It's, it's embodied mind. Your mind is embodied. And in fact, well, I'll come back to the mind being embodied. Um, there's a little more to it. But, um, so... So going back to, okay, so why, what is the problem with having a simplified or an outdated model of how things work? Yeah, this is the good part of the brain, you shut down the amygdala, you strengthen prefrontal cortex, you know, you send energy to the, uh, you know, I've even heard various people um, creating uh, meditation practice. Oh yeah, you send energy to this part of your brain to strengthen it. Um, what is the problem with that? Is there a problem? Is there not? So, I think there are a few issues. One is truth. It's not true. It, that's just not how things work. right? That's the, the best of our knowledge, the brain is highly interconnected. It's not this part versus this part. So, so in terms of cultivating truthfulness, it's not true. In terms of cultivating wise speech and wise speech practice, needs to be true. Needs to be timely, beneficial, gentle, and kind. Well, the truthfulness thing is just not there. When you really simplify these models to the point of inaccuracy, to them just being right out. False falsehood. Also, another problem I would say is is this, it, they don't support the sense of humility or awe that we really need to have about this existence of this human existence, this this mind, this brain, this body, this this embodied mind, because you get. You know, what you get is a false satisfaction, a false sense of satisfaction that you understand how your brain works. Oh, yeah, yeah, this person, you know, they told me how it works. Whereas what you give up is the humility of not knowing, the awe of the don't know mind, the don't know mind, 
I don't know, and it's okay. You can't grasp. It's so complicated. You know, our best neuroscientists, they only know three inches out of a whole darn mile. They don't know. So you don't know, and it's okay. Let's have humility about it. Let's have awe about this amazing thing that is you. And I think the last and most important problem that I feel quite passionate about both as a scientist and as a practitioner, actually, as a practitioner is, I feel if we believe, if we buy into these wrong, outdated models, we're making a devil's bargain. We are trading, we're we're trading these practices, the Buddhist practices that are known to work for 2,600 years, we know that what the practice that works, embodiment, okay, bring your awareness to your breath, be, observe, observe with curiosity, with kindness, comp- cultivating compassion, cultivating curiosity, cultivating wisdom. You know, these practices, there's a lot of practice, there's a whole body of practices that we know work for, for wisdom, for compassion, for freedom, for living a a freer life, for for becoming more in touch with your humanity, for just inhabiting it for more fully. We know these practices work. So the devil's bargain would be to trade these in, not engaging in what we know actually cultivates and helps us really touch into our true humanity. And instead, uh, applying snake oil. Applying snake oil, these practices, you know, sending energy here, trying to strengthen your neocortex here and there, and really settling for a broken materialist, neuralist model. It's both materialist and neuralist. So, so don't set your sights short of, short of the 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 possibilities. Really, the the beautiful possibilities of 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 freedom and, and true awakening of the heart and mind and instead reduce yourself to, you know, the same way that the healthcare system sometimes reduces people's humanity to just their part of their body, appendicitis in room two, lung cancer in room three. You know, you don't want to reduce your magnificence to underactive neocortex and rotan, you know. You don't want to reduce yourself to that. You're so much more. You are so much more than that. So, I'd like to come, there's more I can say about that, but I want to come and now speak a little more about practice, actually about practice. So, being a scientist of your own mind, Dhamma Vichaya, Dhamma Vichaya, which is the factor of investigation, factor of investigation in, in, um, in the practice, which is a very important factor, actually, uh, investigation. So, in fact, it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's so important. So, Bringing, and, and, and it's not an intellectual heady endeavor, not from a control tower, but it's, it's an embodied, it's an intimate exploration of your experience, being curious about your experience. 
just as you were invited earlier, a few other invitations for you to practice at home with as, as a scientist of your mind. Be curious about your own suffering. Let the suffering be a guide. Where am I caught? Where am I caught? Let that point to freedom. Where am I caught? Or let your curiosity be about your perceptions. Seeing the projections of your mind. Can you meet every moment fresh? There's, because another aspect, now I'm going to switch back to the, um, uh, to, the, um, to the other model for a moment. Because our, our minds, so, so what we can say about our minds, okay, now that I have thrown out what we cannot say, what we can say about our minds as we do this investigation. One is that, um, I think at the forefront of research into the mind is what's called the 4E cognition. And it's a relatively young and thriving field of interdisciplinary research. And it assumes that cognition is shaped and structured by dynamic interactions between the brain, body, um, both physical and social environments. So what are the four E's? One of the E's, the first E is embodiment. That your brain operates within and throughout your body. It's an embodied mind. It's embodiment. And that, for those of you who've been practicing for a while, you recognize, oh, the Buddha's instructions on, on mindfulness of the body. Kayagatasati. Kayagatasati. Mindfulness gone to the body. Mindfulness gone to the body. Embodied mindfulness. Not just, oh, what am I thinking? But embodied mindfulness. Really curious about your whole body embodiment. So that's one of the four E's. The second one, embedded. The bodily system is embedded in, connected to, and part of an environment. So it's embedded. There's an embedding of, of your mind within the environment. Your experience, the way an experience you would have if you closed your eyes in this room, with all the people around you practicing, when this context would be very different if you were sitting in the middle of the sidewalk or if you were in a forest in the trees. It's an embodied experience. Your mind is, is, a, um, is an embedded experience in the environment. Environment affects your mind. It's also extended. The environment extends through time and space, meaning it doesn't have fixed boundaries and it keeps changing. So your mind, this and the environment. So so your mind is is embedded, and the embedding isn't just here. It's also extended. It's through the culture, through the many, you know, uh, the history, the cultural history, both through through time and also through space. So your mind is not just embodied, not just embedded. It's also extended. You get that? I mean, the, the experience of mind is, is now feels much more, le- much more expansive than just materialistic, oh, this lights up, that's my mind. No, this is your mind. But, and then here's the fourth E. It's inactive. We're not passive cognitive processors of a predetermined reality. We enact reality through the actions we perform. Okay, it's inactive. It's interactive. 
your, you, your, first of all, internally, your perceptions. So the way, the way you perceive reality, it's interactive. Have you noticed if you're in a bad mood, there's nothing wrong, you know, if, if you're, say, you know, your friend or your partner, they can say nothing wrong if, if, you, if you're in a bad mood, right? Perception, it's enacted. Your perception is enacted. You're creating your reality. But if you're in a good mood, oh, yeah, everything is great. It's not like reality is out there and you're just perceiving it. You are interacting with it. Your mind is an enacted, interactive. It's, pro- it's interacting with the environment creating the reality. Does that make sense? I hope this gives, a, you know, it, this expands the experience of mind. It's not just this thing, this materialistic, oh yeah, lights up, it, this part, that. It's much grander. We're all in this room right now. We're affecting each other's mind. It's embedded, extended, enacted. We're co-creating this experience together affecting each other's minds right now. As I look around, I see your face. I'm being affected in what I say and how I say it. And you're being affected. This is pretty cool and wild, isn't it? So that's what I like to point to. That awe, that magnificence instead of this reductionistic model that's espoused. So don't sell yourself short. And allow yourself also to have the don't know mind, the don't know mind, the the what what Suzuki Roshi, the author of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he, he says, in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities, but in the expert expert's mind there are few. Have a beginner's mind, this freshness, this openness, curiosity about experience. So being a scientist of your own experience with curiosity about so many different aspects. And the last thing I want to say, actually two last quick things I want to say. One is, as a scientist, I invite you to have fun. This is not, your practice is not supposed to be a grim duty of sitting, okay, I'm supposed to breathe now. Have fun with it. How can you make your practice, your meditation practice, this first-person investigation of your mind, how can you make it fun? Because it is fun. It's awesome. It's amazing. How can you make it fun instead of, oh, I have to meditate, they say it's good for me. Because that's, the, that's the, the easiest way to completely lose interest. The last thing I want to say is, you know, a scientist works with aspiration and inspiration about their subject. It's not about, you know, science, studying, investigation is not about getting something. It's not about getting an A. It's not a chore. It's like loving the subject. It's like, curiosity. this is fun. This is cool. Wow, this is interesting. That's how you can spend endless hours meditating on retreat, curiosity. And at some point also, this practice is not just about reducing suffering. 
There comes a point when end reducing suffering, whatever your suffering might be, alone, it seems lacking. The practice becomes who you are. You become the path. The path becomes you, how you live your life. We're touching into dimensions, into the sacred, the mystery, the divine, the humanity. What is this mind that is not just here, but it's this mind. What is this mind? Having awe, curiosity about that. This, as Einstein was talking about, this feeling of the sacred that you have. It's not just about, oh, I'm just doing this practice of meditation so I suffer less. No, it, you tap into something else. Really, I do want to bring in, evoke the divine, the sacred. It's not evoked enough, I think, in this temple. And when you do practice, your mind does open up to these dimensions of the sacred. And your life feels sacred. Just being alive feels sacred. The fact that you're alive, you're walking this earth. It doesn't matter what you do, whether you accomplish your to-do list or not. Just the fact that you are, you're existing, becomes sacred. And some of the things I'm saying may make no sense. Just drop them in and trust that a part of you someday will resonate. And then... You want to fall and kiss the ground in awe like a true scientist. Like a true scientist of your own mind. Let's just sit together for a few moments. your eyes closed, let this quote, last quote by Einstein, my childhood hero, to wash over you. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. Thank you for your kind attention. May you be well and free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.